All right, first question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> How do you handle or respond when someone makes you their idol? How do you handle or respond when someone makes you their idol? Part of what you have to do is once you learn that they've chosen you to be their idol, anticipate their disappointments with you quickly. Okay? <laughs> Expect them to have a lot of issues with you because they're not seeing you as a person to love, they're seeing you as a person to use. So wisdom says, I can't change this, but I need to anticipate how it's going to come at me, and when the time is right, I need to share with them how their expectations of me are driving this relationship and to reconsider doing something different. Now, that may not always happen because when people are stuck in their ways, they're stuck in their ways. So be prepared to be at the highs of their life and the lows of their life and learn how to endure that time until God brings them to their senses. One of the most difficult things that we have to do with people is sometimes we haven't learned yet, but we have to suffer through other people's character deficiencies. And what that means is this. You are close to some people, and they haven't changed. They don't see the issue of changing, but yet you're committed to being with them. You have to learn what I call suffer well. Because until they are broken and ready to see, which you can't make them see, God is using that to make you better, not bitter. And so as I've learned that some people have made me idols in their lives, I've understood that they enjoy me when I do what they want. They hate me when I don't. And the reality is they haven't learned how to love me. They're still using me. And I've got to work through that with them and suffer well. No, it's not what you want to hear, but it's the, the reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, think about your children. Sometimes your children make you uh, their idols. And they believe their whole world revolves around your decisions. And they love you when you do what they want. They hate you when you don't. Sometimes your spouses do that with you. So it's a process of learning how to love them consistently, sharing the truth with them about how they're handling you, waiting for the Lord to use it as an opportunity to help them change. Next question. Um, I think they're quoting you. You mentioned that psychology considers certain things as needs, but they're not needs. Example, uh, to be loved, respected, safe, happy, etc. Is it therefore wrong to have those desires, or is it only wrong when those desires are elevated to the position of being an idol? Love the answer that you answered in the question. And the answer is, it's not wrong to desire love to be accepted. I mean, I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. It's when my world is reduced to those things, absolutely. So it's nothing wrong with wanting that. It's when you live for it. It's nothing wrong with expecting it from people. It's when you demand it from people. And you know when you've demanded from people when they don't give it to you, your reactions. Because if you can live without it, you're in a good spot. But if your whole demeanor has changed when they didn't give it to you, now you've known it's become a demand in worship. So hopefully that, that helps. Do you, personally, do you have men in your life that can ask you tough questions about your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with others? 
So are there men in your life? Yes. There are five men that can tell me what to do. <laughs> and when me and my wife don't really get along or we can't really resolve it, the moment she threatens to call one of those men, I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I think we can work this out. Because these men have that much authority in my life that I've given that they can come in my house where I pay the bills and tell me what to do. And because I respect them, I'll do it. And there are five women in her life that if she gets really out of the way, I can call one of them and she don't want me to call them because she has that much respect. One of the things I'll tell you, if no one can tell you what to do, then no one can help you in anything you're doing. And every couple needs somebody that they will submit to and follow the instructions of those people, whether they agree with them or not. But if no one can tell you what to do, then no one can help you. That's what I tell people in counseling. Counseling only helps if you're willing to submit to authority and follow instructions. And where you can't do that, it, it won't help. It's just a good conversation. And what I found with a lot of people, no one can tell them what to do because they're not accountable to anybody. And so as the head of our church with other leaders around, there's accountability. If I act crazy, they can put me out. Um, if I'm doing something they don't think is biblically solid, I can be challenged on it. But even apart from that, these five men have authority to my life to come into my house and say, you are in sin, and this is what needs to happen. And if I'm not listening to them, I'm gone anyway. And God is going to deal with me tremendously. So absolutely, everybody needs it, everybody. Now, how would you counsel someone that worries to the point of manifesting or experiencing physical symptoms? So worry is to the point of physical ailment. Well, I'm going to deal with them in the worry before it gets there. Because worry, even though we think it's respectable sin, it's a sin. And so where there's worry, there's worship. So I'm going to teach them about the idolatrous lust. We're going to work through what they are consumed with that they think they might stand to lose. Or I like to put it this way, what they can't cause to happen or they can't keep from happening. We're going to have a lot of discussions about that. And who is God and how does he apply his sovereignty to their lives? And I'm going to help them work through that with worry. And where they're willing to embrace that they have something that's way more important and we confess, repent, replace, and start to embrace the sovereignty practically and deal with the issues of what they're trying to control they can't control, we're going to help them through that. Because the physiological effect is just saying your worry has got to a place where now it's affecting the body, which means that we've gotten to it a little bit too late. question is saying so we're called to speak the truth in love and if you say the hard thing to someone that's not willing to hear or is struggling with hearing um sub subjects like adultery fornication unforgiveness and that person accused you of being pharisaical or unloving what or how can you speak to someone if you speak to them in love and the truth hurts, is it your tone, posture? So what, what's helpful to speak uh, difficult truth? To, uh... Let me make it plain. You can be as sweet 
and put sugar on top. But I need you to understand something about Galatians 6.1 and Romans 8. Galatians 6.1 says, if your brother is sin, you who are spiritual, which means you're walking by the Spirit, go and restore such a one, but you be careful lest you too be tempted. Okay, what that means is this. We think because we're telling people the truth, they're going to go, oh, thank you, oh, wise one. Now that you've come and given me this insight, had you not given me this insight, my life would be so different. And now because you've spoken the truth to me, I'm going to change and move forward. Thank you for sharing. See, we've got this idea that because we speak the truth to people, they're going to accept it. But what we fail to understand is that in Romans chapter 8, it says those who are in the flesh are hostile towards God. Well, if they're in the sin, they're already what? In the... So when we come speak the truth, what should we expect them to be towards us? And we don't get that. See, in our minds, it's us. And because we're so special, we're coming with the Bible, and now we have prayed about it, and we've talked about the right time, and now we're going to give people the word, and they're going to go, oh, thank you. It's not reality. They're caught in sin. Expect them to be hostile towards you. You can smile, you can be patient, but they're going to be hostile until God breaks them. And that may or may not be the moment they're broken. But if you think because you tell people the truth they're going to listen to you, you have missed it. Can I make it plain? How many times did people tell you the truth and you didn't listen? But you think you're special. It's different because it's you. Get over yourself. It's hard to love people because people don't want to be loved that way. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And sometimes the more you love someone, the more they want to bite you. And it's not personal. It's because they're in the flesh. Hostile towards God. Does everybody understand that? That's why I tell a lot of people, you got to learn to suffer well in the love ministry. Suffer well. Hope that answers for you. Next question, I have many Christian friends who come to me talking about their quote-unquote problems in their marriage. The theme I hear is, this isn't a marriage. I am becoming more bold to discuss the root of of all our problems. How can I balance not minimizing the reality of hard things with loving exhortation that God has a bigger plan and they are also at fault? So... Did you get that? I think I understand. I I would try to summarize this by saying this to people with marriage issues. We don't have marriage problems. We have character deficiencies that have showed up in the marriage. And the moment you can begin to phrase it with that reality, because it's not a marriage problem, you're married to this person, and this character deficiency in this situation has showed up that you've never addressed. And this is another area where you have been called to live to please God that you're not. And so now this clash with your spouse, you think it's a marital problem. No, it's two people operating in the flesh in this area. Had this person not did certain things and not do certain things, he never would have revealed just how depraved you are in this area and your need to change in this area. It's not a marriage problem. It's a character deficiency problem. And the more you're willing to see it in that light, as I tell people, your marriage is fine. It's the character that needs fixing. The marriage is doing its job. Put two people together in the flesh. What are you going to get? 
What happens when those two people deal with those fleshly issues and begin to live, live to please God in those areas? What happens to that relationship? Marriages change when people change their character, not because they follow a formula. And the more they work on their character, the more the marriage changes. The marriage is a progression as far as what's happening to the character that's in the marriage. The more you're living to please Christ, what will the marriage look like? The more you're living to please self, what will the marriage look like? So, and I tell people, even if you got rid of this guy, if you got rid of this gal and went to somebody else, you're going to have the same problem because the problem is sitting in your seat. Like this guy I counseled on his fifth wife. He says, you know what? I think it's me. I said, you think? <laughs> you now on wife number five see that it's you? So this fantasy that you can have the right person is a lie from the pit of hell. The reality is all of you can walk in what's right and become right in the marriage and be a blessing to each other or be a burden. It's always about your sanctification or lack thereof. You get rid of somebody, marry somebody else, why am I having these problems? I thought I wasn't going to have this with you. Yeah, but you forgot one simple thing. The same reason you marry will be the same reason you divorce. If you marry for selfish reasons, you will divorce for selfish reasons. You always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. So hopefully, whoever that was for, I hope that helps the questionnaire. All right. Final question that was in the box. Um, what happens if you're just obeying God? So if you're obeying God, what? What happens? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Pastor, um, Pastor, Carl, Pastor Carl wrote this question. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at Psalm 1611. Just go there for just one moment. So when you're just obeying God, that will lead you to know him, become like him, and be useful to him. But here's the experience that you will also have in just obeying God. Before we look at Psalm 1611, John 14, 21 says, He who has his commandments and keepeth them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me, I will disclose myself to him. When... God expo or exposes himself to you, here's what happens when you are in his presence. Trying to get there. All right, here we go, here we go. Where are we? Verse 11 says, Thou wilt make known to me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forever. So the more you obey God, you get in his presence. The more you're in his presence, you get the fullness of joy that's not conditioned upon people and circumstances, and you get a satisfaction of the soul that's not conditioned upon people and circumstances. That's what happens when you're just obeying God. All right, are there any questions you may have that you didn't put in the box or have an opportunity to put in the box? All right.
because I'm their pastor, I'll shift sometimes from being the father to the pastor. And so as the pastor, I have to deal with them as well as my daughters. And so if there's something that needs to be accountable with, if it's not some women in the church that's not working with them already as their pastor and their father, which that's double duty. I know they hate that sometimes. I have to confront them because I have put my children on church discipline and they have repented. And that shocked the church. I tell the church, I love God more than I love my family. And if I do it to my daughter, don't think I won't hesitate to do it with you. This is God's house, God's holiness. So I, I love my children, but I love God more. And I don't ever want to be uh, guilty of letting them slide with something because they're my children. So as the shepherd and as their father, I, I confront immediately. Um, if whoever their authority is as far as the church, you know, first you do the Matthew 18. Go to them in private, bring witnesses, and where that lacks, then whoever their authority is, if it's not your pastor or someone else, you take it to that church under that authority because you love them. Because even though you're children, they're now adults. And so you would treat them as, even though they're your children, but as adult children, which means there's certain things now that didn't fall under your authority anymore. But whatever that authority is, you're going to work with that authority to work with them. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Uh, suffer well. You can't make believers do godly things, but you also have to make sure that there's certain things you may have to disconnect from as it relates to them. You know, sometimes we want the presence of our children and we're so scared to lose it that we'll put up with things that we wouldn't normally put up with that's, that we shouldn't. And when you have a relationship that's built on fear, you don't have a relationship because eventually you have to tell them the truth and then they're going to walk away anyway. So you need to be loving up front and not try to hold on to something you really don't have. Anybody else before we shut it down? Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, ma'am, I see you struggling. Should I, should I not? Go ahead, put it out there. Take your time. You are asking a question that opens a can of worms that requires a whole lot of teaching to talk about. Um, but let me see if I can put it this way. I got it. I got it. Um, forgiveness and love are not synonymous. And that's one of the problems we have. God loves unconditionally, but his forgiveness is based upon people seeking it. That's why unbelievers will burn in hell, not because he doesn't love them. Because Christ died that our sins would be forgiven. 
But the apprehension of that blessing comes when you acknowledge your need for a Savior and depend on him to do what he's done. So the question is not, have all sins been forgiven? Have you embraced that forgiveness, and how do you embrace that forgiveness? Does that make sense? So he says to forgive as you've been forgiven, but to love as I've loved you. To love someone means that even if they're mean or nasty, I'm going to still do right by you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do all the things that are necessary. But forgiveness of sin is granted when you seek it. But I also need to confront you, according to Matthew 18, according to Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. It never says, if he repents or doesn't repent, that's when you decide to love. God loves those who are evil and spiteful and ask us to do the same. But to cancel a debt, to release someone from something owed, there must be a discussion about the acknowledgement of it so they can be released from it. Now, that's hard for a lot of people because they say, well, God just, God forgives everybody. He does, but how does he forgive? If forgiveness was unconditional, then we should not fault the Catholics. Because we're all Christians then if forgiveness is unconditional. There is no step. God has paid the penalty. We're all Christians now. Is that true biblically? So the reality is forgiveness is available, but how does one receive it? They ask. But love confronts, love provides, love presents the truth, love takes care of. That's a hard thing, and it opens a can of worms, I know, because you have to really study that. And if you haven't heard that teaching, um, I'm trying to think of where you can go to get it online. You can get a book by Jay Adams called From, Far, From, Forgiven, From Forgiven to Forgiving. It's by Jay Adams. And um, Stuart Scott, if you could look up any of his material, he has information on that thing. So that that's opens a can of worms because most people think you just forgive. No, you just love. Love confronts sin. Okay, so hope that answers the question for you. Practically, what what does that unforgiveness look like? Oh, unforgiveness just means that. Like if they if they don't ask for forgiveness. It's Matthew eighteen. I'm going to confront you about your sin. I'm going to bring witnesses, and if you still don't repent, we're going to bring it to the church. But when will that person be forgiven? when they choose to acknowledge before the church they've done wrong. But if they don't, that's what church discipline kicks in. And why is the church discipline? Because this person was unwilling to what? Repent. So the moment, they, do we not love them anymore? We love them. We see them on the streets. We want to be there for them. We're going to be praying for them. But why can't they play in the reindeer games with us? Because they haven't what? Well, if it was unconditional, then we don't need church discipline. Just love them, forgive them, we move on. So the more we understand how to apply that practice, that's what it looks like. It's not that we are anti. It's not that we don't treat them right. It's not that we don't pray for them. It's just that there's certain things they cannot participate in until they acknowledge, and then they're welcome. I think she had her hand up first here. Well, the key is that 
not that you can't forgive them, are you always ready to forgive? And the problem we have with most people is not unforgiveness, it's a lack of love. We confuse forgiveness with lack of love. For instance, if I'm bitter in my heart towards you, that's not unforgiveness, that's a lack of love. If I'm angry towards you, that's not unforgiveness, it's a lack of love. So the problem with most of us is not a lack of unforgiveness, it's a lack of love. And because we don't distinguish between forgiving and lack of love, we get those things confused. So let's say uh, someone had an uncle that raped and molested them, and he never sought forgiveness for the sin he committed against them. But in your heart, you've been guilty and angry. The problem with you is not unforgiveness. You've been bitter and resentful. So what needs to happen is to deal with your bitterness and resentment before God, not uh, unforgiving spirit. That's not the issue. That person didn't seek forgiveness, but your heart was held hostage by your bitterness. That's an unloving attitude, not an issue of forgiveness. And what happens is that's been so mixed because of psychology, we're not distinguishing the difference. And we're telling people to forgive the person who molested them, who never humbled themselves and sought for it. What we need to be telling them is you need to get over the bitterness and resentment you have towards them. So does it matter if they don't forgive them? Well, the issue is... Forgiveness is conditioned upon the person asking for it, but love is unconditional. The problem you have with people is not forgiving them. It's the fact that you're bitter and resentful towards them. That's what you need to help people work with. Does that make sense? So one is depending on the other. In other words, if I don't humble myself and ask for forgiveness, that's on that person. But if I'm holding them hostage, that's not me being unforgiving. That's me being unloving and bitter. That's the problem I have to deal with with God and that person. So probably the consequence of that person not asking for forgiveness is a hindrance to the relationship. It's a hindrance in that I'm going to keep bringing it up, and I'm going to do Matthew 18. And what does Matthew 18 lead us to? Church discipline. And that's what most people don't recognize. Church discipline is the form of saying you're not forgiven until you repent. But we just never thought about it in that reality. Because if not, we're saying, well, if forgiveness is unconditional, we don't need to do church discipline. We just forgive them and move on, even though they're staying in sin in the church. But we don't do that. We say, you're welcome back when you seek forgiveness and repent. You're welcome. Well, that's a form of withholding forgiveness until the person repents. And it's appropriate according to Scripture. Now, withholding love is unbiblical and ungodly. But you have to distinguish between love and forgiveness. And most people biblically have not taken the time to do that. Uh, well, to some extent, because um, reconciliation is not always feasible. God forgave Adam and Eve, but they never got back into the garden. You know, so forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. So we have to be careful with that idea. But what we're saying is the person hasn't humbled themselves to seek it. You're still going to be loving. You're still praying for them. Where you can, you're serving them, but you're not overlooking the elephant in the living room. And what tends to happen in situations like that, if the person, if you're not following Matthew 18 or if you're following Matthew 18, it can bring them to a place of brokenness because you've been so loving, you've been so patient, you've shared the truth, you've brought witnesses, you've brought the church in because you want this reconciled. You're loving them, but we can't let this go because this sin needs to be addressed. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Right here, and then we'll come back to you. Yes, ma'am. Well, you didn't get your way. And the bitterness and anger reveals how you wanted something more than God allowed in the moment. moment. Right. And you have to learn to suffer well. Because what was right should have happened didn't happen. Okay, how do you adjust your desires for the situation? Because if it's about God's will being done, you wouldn't be bitter or resentful. You would accept the fact that there's something you wanted didn't happen the way you wanted it, and you have to accept that this is the way it's happened. But to be bitter and angry, it was more about you getting what you wanted more than God's will being done. Does that make sense? And that's where you have to have a talk with the Lord. Lord, I know this was the right thing, but why am I so angry? Because of how this treated you or how this um, made you feel or how this, you know, crippled you in certain areas or the damage has caused. You haven't dealt with the bitterness towards the person. And so it's not about forgiveness in that moment. You're bitter and angry. That's about a lack of love. And that's where God has to help you see you will suffer at the hands of other people at times. Is it okay to be bitter and angry towards someone? Or how is it that this situation is showing you areas where you need to accept what God has allowed, submit to his will, and be faithful to do what you need to do, even though they haven't gotten what they're going to get? Because trust me, God will deal with that at the right time. But at that moment, that's about you now doing business with the Lord and your bitterness in your own heart. Is there ever a right time to be bitter? Does that make sense? Even in the right thing should have happened. Oh, right here. <laughs> Absolutely. ACBC. Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. You go on the website, you put in a, a, a zip code, there are thousands of us around the country. ACBC. Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. There's thousands of us around the country. Yeah. Oh, back here. In the back, she had her Oh, back. I'm sorry, here, and then we'll come here. Let's define hurt. Hurt is a big word. Were they disappointed in their expectations or were they sinned against? Because hurt comes from both angles. Okay, that's important. You see why I had to make that distinction? Okay.
let me give an example of where what they're saying is right, and then sometimes people can use it as an excuse. Let's say I'm a member of this church, and we discover that someone has been, less, been molesting one of our children at this church in the children's ministry, and then they seek forgiveness. Will we restore them back to the position they had? So we understand it then. Or let's say someone was working in the finances at this church, and they start stealing money, and we discovered it, and they sought forgiveness. We forgave them. Will we let them back in there? Forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. We have to evaluate it case by case to understand. And so depending on the situation you're talking about, I'd have to talk with you personally to see, is this a situation where that's more of an option than an obligation? Okay. For a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, the more self-centered you are, the more personal you take things, and the more difficult it is for you to see that it's about loving others, not about just you feeling comfortable with people. And it takes the act of God to work on that. Suffer well. Does that make sense? That's a conversation for you and your pastor. That's more of a private matter that needs to happen where you guys talk. That's not something I can speak to directly. Does that make sense? That's like asking me, well, what do you think about divorce and remarriage? I think what your pastor thinks. Does that make sense? So that's a private conversation you guys have to talk about. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Going once, going twice, we're out of here. Thank you, guys.